The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. So for this message series, what I've done is I've adapted these three into this new message series, Family Practice, How to Build a Strong Spiritual Identity Beyond Sunday Morning. Adapted these three into knowing, serving, and loving. I'm not going to ask you to have to repeat those three after me again. Knowing, serving, and loving. And really, this message series comes directly out of our DNA, out of our core values, out of our core strengths, our core practices. It says that we are committed to fostering family spiritual growth. That Sundays are not, not about getting religion for one day a week, but about motivating, sustaining, and celebrating the religion we have and that we yearn to make stronger. You see, that real religion, real spirituality is lived in the everydayness of life. It is not about going up to the mountaintop, although I have had those experiences. I'm sure some of you have had those experiences, those epiphanies, those rare moments of insight, and they are so valuable. But the point is to reintegrate those moments back into life. It's not about living at the mountaintop. Real life, real spirituality happens in the village that exists at the base of the mountain, here in the midst of everything. So Buddha saying that, I think sums it up quite nicely, after the ecstasy, then comes the laundry. After the ecstasy, then you got to do the laundry. See, it's the life beyond Sunday morning that we're dedicated to here at Wellsprings. It's why we gather on Sunday morning. This is what it means to be charged full, is to help all of us grow when this hour to an hour and ten minutes, if I'm running a little bit long, is over. Pointing us back into life with meaning and purpose. And this relates to another of our core values here at Wellsprings, our core value around spiritual practice. Not spiritual theory, not spiritual conception, but spiritual practice as a primary means for our growth and of our growth. I'm going to relate this to family life right now and in this message series to come. You've heard it say that in some other traditions they talk about the family that prays together, stays together. Well, we're going to expand that as we like to do as liberal religious folk just a little bit. We want to say the family that practices together stays together. The family that practices together grows together, has a stronger identity and sense of itself, and is able to celebrate those absolutely wonderful high points in life, and is more resilient when inevitably sorrow and tragedy will visit us all. That's what spiritual practice helps us do as people who belong to families. But even more, family spiritual practice is a way of sanctifying which just is a fancy way of saying making sacred the everyday stuff of life so that we treat life as a gift, not as something we're always waiting for the next moment and the next moment after that and the next moment after that. And pretty soon years and decades have gone by and wondering, where did it go? Spiritual practice, family spiritual practice is about recognizing the miracle of existence that is here every single day because you know what? If we're waiting for the miracle someday to arrive... We're missing the miracle that is right here at our feet and in our hands this very moment. That's what spiritual practice is about, recognizing and awakening to this very moment. I don't think I've ever heard a more beautifully evocative picture of family spiritual life than the beginning, the very beginning of... Any of you remember James Agee's A Death in the Family? Remember reading that at any point a few years back? I don't know if it's read all that commonly anymore. It is an absolutely gorgeous book. I'm going to read you the beginning, the beginning of what he's talking about. It says, Knoxville, Tennessee, summer 1915. 
James A.G. writes, We are talking now of summer evenings in Knoxville, Tennessee, in the time that I lived there so successfully disguised to myself as a child. On the rough, wet grass of the backyard, my father and mother have spread quilts. We all lie there, my mother, my father, my uncle, my aunt, and I am lying there too. They are not talking much, and the talk of what there is is quiet. The stars are wide and alive. They each seem like a smile of great sweetness upon me, and they seem very, very near. All my people are bodies larger than my own. One is an artist. He is living at home. One is a musician. She is living at home. One is my mother who is good to me. One is my father who is good to me. By some chance, here they are all here on this earth. And who shall ever tell of the sorrow of being on this earth? Lying on quilts here in the grass in the summer evening among the sounds of the night. May God bless my people, my uncle, my aunt, my mother, my good father. Oh, remember them kindly in their time of trouble, in the hour of their taking away. After a little while, I am taken in and put to bed. Sleep, soft smiling, draws me unto her and those receive me who quietly treat me as one familiar and well-beloved in that home. But will not, oh, will not, not now, not ever, but will not ever tell me who I am. Now, if you know the book, it opens with that. And the next passage, we learn that the death in the family is the death of his father, James A.G.'s father. It is one of the most profoundly stirring books I have ever read. Now, the irony of that last line but will not, oh, will not, not now, not ever, but will not ever tell me who I am. The irony is that our family lives never tell us who we are, never solve the riddle of our existence, our identity. But you can hear from the way that James A.G. writes that our families can help cultivate a sense of who we are, can help point us perhaps in the right direction, or even perhaps point us in the wrong direction, give us an orientation in this life. And just to let you know, as we dig a little deeper here, that I am defining family very broadly. Perhaps you are part of the traditional nuclear family, a mom, a dad, uh, what is it, 2.3 kids, half a dog or three quarters of a dog or something like that. Well, you know, family is that, but family is much more as well in these days. We want to Define family in an expansive way. So this is the way I define it. The family are the people with whom you experience the greatest emotional intimacy on a regular basis. They are the people with whom you share a past and the people with whom you plan a future around. That is family in a truly loving way, not just in the sense of demography. So with these people, with your people, today we're talking about the practice of knowing of knowing as a spiritual practice in our families and the question I want to ask you right now and maybe you can just make a mental note of it or jot yourself a note as you might answer it as we begin how is your family life built so that you are exposed to the knowledge of yourself and to the others around you 
How is your family life built so that you are exposed to the knowledge of yourself and the lives of other people, the circle of intimates around you? See, because we're talking more than just facts. I live on such and such street, in such and such place, in such and such time, in such and such town. We're talking not just about the facts. We're talking about the wisdom behind those facts. What really counts in your family life? Thoreau said it this way. I went into the woods, he talked about in Walden. I went into the woods so that I could front only the essential facts of life. Now, by the way, one of our springboards this summer is about taking walks in the woods together. About awakening to the mystery and the miracle of nature. And doing things like reading Thoreau. While you're walking. Well, maybe not right at the moment because then that you trip over a branch or something. But it's, it's having that opportunity to reflect while you are out in nature. But it is not just about going into the woods. Family spiritual practice is about the everyday. The ancient Greeks put it this way. They said, know thyself. Know thyself. Know your life. But they didn't mean it in an individualistic way as we might think in our time. They didn't have the same conception of a person set aside or apart or outside of community. When they said know thyself, what they meant is know how you have come to be who you are. Socrates put it this way. The unexamined life is not worth living. But Socrates did not say this as some solitary philosopher, not some brooding, beret-wearing, cigarette-smoking philosophy student huddled in in a cubby in the back of the library. Not that I've ever been such a caricature. But what Socrates was talking about, he always did in the context of a dialogue. It wasn't a solitary writer off by himself, away from life. He was figuring things out with his family, with his family of choice, his circle of intimates, and always was about the conversation. They had constructed their lives so that they were facing the essential things of life on a regular basis. That's what philosophy means. It's become very abstract. It's become very out there. When I was taking philosophy about a decade or so ago, the more difficult it was, the more inscrutable the wisdom was, the words on the page. I remember reading one Immanuel Kant sentence that literally went on for a page and a half with, I think, ten parenthetical clauses within it. Frankly, hurting someone else's brain should not be an index of how good the philosophy is. Philosophy simply means this, that you are a lover of wisdom. It is about the most practical things in life. And so we are all engaged in the act of philosophy. Not to be abstract, but to be as real as we can be. And so we return to that question again. How does your family focus on the essential things in life? Take the opportunity that society might present you. I remember a number of years ago when I was in ministry in South Florida. And ministry in South Florida was always challenging because there always seemed to be one thing after another. There was... Elian Gonzalez, and then there was the Florida elections of 2000, and then, of course, there was the Terry Schiavo fiasco. Now, if there was one good thing that came about through that absolutely unconscionable intrusion of governments into personal life, it was this. I know that more people in my congregation I was serving at the time had that conversation about within their families, with their kids, with their spouses, with their parents. What do we want to do? What do you want to do if that was us, if that was you in that bed? What would your final directives be? 
What would your wishes be at the end of your life so that you could say, I would wish to die in this way with you, my family, knowing how, how and who I am, how we can get to be together, even when life is at its most extreme. Now, that was an opportunity that society presented us with, and some people did it, but there always won't be something in the general society or cultural politics calling us into that conversation. So what I want to put before you is that your family spiritual practice is about the healthy habits, the regular rituals, and the daily practices that you have built into your life so that you are fronting those essential things on a regular basis, not skipping out on life, but focusing on what is there. There's a marketing term that I really like. It comes up in sales. Some of you might know this. They talk about touches. Have you ever heard that experience? That word? They talk about touches. Like if you're at a workshop or you're at one of these big displays, Carl, I know you were at Las Vegas with a whole bunch of thousands of people last week or two weeks ago talking about, you know, the boot, you wanted people to come by your booth. That's what it's about to get touches. I like to apply that same logic, that same understanding to our family spiritual life. How many touches do we have on a regular basis with each other, with our circle of intimates, so that we have the opportunity to grow together? And quality interactions, not just some overstructured, controlling thing like, right now, we will talk about how you are. <laughs> it's a little too top-down. A little too imposing. Probably won't work too well. I like to think of spiritual practice in the same way that if any of you ever had the joy and the boredom, and I mean that simultaneously, intentionally, of going crabbing. If any of you ever gone crabbing, I used to go fishing a lot when I was a kid in Cape Cod. Every once in a while we'd go crabbing. Crabbing is about the most wonderfully boring thing you can do. A crab net, I mean, actually it's more of a trap, has a flat bottom and four different triangles that when you put down to the base, the ground, sea ground floor, falls open. And you put a little bait in the center. And because, well, this was Cape Cod, the water was murky, you couldn't actually see when a crab was going to fall in. You had to just place it down there and wait. Now, of course, if you were pulling up that trap every two minutes, checking, do I have a crab yet? Do I have a crab yet? You're not going to have a crab. You had to wait. You had to have patience. You had to have focus. It wasn't a command and control kind of thing. It was, let's set the ground so that eventually we might find what we are looking for. And if you have patience, you will when you are crabbing. Same thing in your family spiritual life. Same thing in our family spiritual life and in our practices together. And actually, one of the most important stories of family awakening actually starts with the story of how not to awaken. It's the story of the Buddha's awakening, of the young and rich prince thousands of years ago. I know many of you know this story, but actually I want to take a look at it from a different perspective. I want to take a look at it from his parents' perspective. You see, the young rich prince has parents, had a father who wanted to protect him from all the difficult things in life. And so he sort of hid him away. Whenever he would go out into the countryside in the royal carriage, they would draw the blinds. They would draw the blinds. They wanted to surround the young, rich, rich prince with everything that was good in the world so that he would never have to suffer, never have to experience the difficult things in life until that one day when he was out riding in the countryside and he saw for the first time as a young man, 18, 19, 20 years old it probably was, he actually saw an old, stooped person walking through the forest. And he said, what are you? He said, I'm human. <laughs> this is what happens to us. 
Now this prince, having had all the facts of life hidden from him, went back to his father and said, Why? Why have you hid this from me? He said, Because I wanted to spare you the suffering, spare you the sorrow of what it means to have to grow up and grow old, perhaps, and die. And the question was, as has been told to me many times in many different ways, is, is there any way that I could escape this fate? And of course his father answered was no. So eventually it was going to happen to him as well. This is how we can start to construct our family lives. Not as the Buddha's father would have had it, of trying to keep out everything that is harmful, of trying to keep out everything that is real, of trying to keep out everything that might cause us suffering, but trying, much like laying the nets at the bottom of the sea, waiting for the crab to come by, living in such a way so that we are able to capture what is really real. This past week, I saw a story, I think it was on ABC News, and they said the optimal number of words that parents can speak every day to their child as their child moves from sort of, is it infant to toddler stage, as they're just starting to learn language, is 17,000 words a day. Now, of course, some enterprising person has devised a counter. So you can put a counter on your child that will get the audio and you can see, as an anxious parent, if you have done your 17,000 words per day. Now, it turns out that 17,000 words is actually really, really easy. If you are around your child on a regular enough basis, or if you have good caregivers who are around your child on a regular enough basis. You know that all you need to do, and I know those of you who are parents, I am not, do this. I see you doing it with your very young kids. All you need to do is to point out what they see and talk to them about it. All you need to do to get to those 17,000 words so that your child is able to develop cognitively, is able to develop intellectually, is just talk about, there's a red chair there. Just talk about, is it sunny out or cloudy today? Just talk about, isn't it nice to be together? The real, obvious stuff so that the child is able to awaken and be aware of their surroundings. Awaken and be aware of their surrounding. It starts so early for us as human beings. And as we continue to grow, we have to keep this level of intentionality so that life isn't just passing us by. Our family spiritual practice, Teresa and myself, came from a few years ago when we were moving from South Florida up here to Philadelphia. And what happened was, as I know many of you have, we were going through a move. And it was a stressful time. We were excited to be coming to a new place. And we were sad to be leaving our old place. And one of the things that happens in stressful times is we tend to lock down and lock in. We get that sort of telescopic way of looking at the world that we don't notice. And we didn't want that time in our lives to become kind of like how the drive up would be. Racing along I-95 at 70 to 75 miles an hour with just the scenery out the window whizzing past us. We didn't want our lives to be like that. And so, Teresa, in your wisdom, what we did was we bought a book. And she said, you know what, I want us to write in this book on a regular basis, a daily basis if we could, what our impressions are at this time. Well, we thought that would be just for the move up. But in fact, that book has lasted throughout these entire three years since we've been here. And we have written the story of ourselves into that book because very often we live the lives that I know so many of you do, where you're missing each other, where there isn't that time, perhaps as much time as you would like to intentionally spend time together. And so this is our practice. This is our practice. 
to make sure we are not just like ships passing in the night, but taking the opportunity to recognize, taking the opportunity to recognize and to really, really savor our lives. As I was prepping for this message this morning, I took an opportunity to look back in those last three years. And a phrase kept coming up, and Teresa actually was something, I'm not going to tell you what it was because I'm allowed to have a little privacy up here, uh, but suffice it to say it was one of our, well, my, many imperfections that was the cause for Teresa to write this, but it was one of the common things. There are many. They are legion. There are multitudes. It was the occasion that Teresa wrote this. She said, our imperfections are opportunities for grace. Our imperfections are opportunities for grace. And as I started to read through, I saw this theme coming up time and time again. Now you might say, well, stop doing the same old stuff over and over again. Stop having imperfections. That's like telling me to stop breathing. I would be dead. Instead, what I read in there is that we are having an ongoing conversation in our family about the ways of understanding forgiveness about the ways of understanding compassion, about the ways of understanding that when you share a life with another person or a life with people, there are going to be jagged edges. There are going to be jagged edges that perhaps might poke and prod and even from time to time hurts a little bit. But if we understand these things and can forgive each other and can recognize that as we move through time in life together, we will see our story We will know our story coming to be if we take the time to practice and to be aware. That's our method of having touches, of making sure that we do not fall asleep as we move through life. So again, I want to return it to that question for you here today. Where are your touches? Where are your family spiritual practices so that you are awakening in the midst of your life? I want to suggest some really simple ones, some simple places to start in the case that perhaps you don't have one already, although I know some of you do have family spiritual practices. Envision yourself at your dinner table. Who's there? What's going on? Is it like Homer Simpson, you know, just shovel the food in and move on to the next thing? Don't want to miss that show that's coming on at eight o'clock? Well, you know, spend the ten dollars a month, get yourself a DVR, the show can wait. What's dinner like in your house? What is bedtime like in your house? Especially if you have young kids, those can be scary times. Those can be, I'm afraid of the dark times. How is it that you construct those things that we have to do every day so that you are using that as an occasion for saying, who am I in this place and who are we together? So life is not just passing us by. Perhaps if you live on your own, I would phrase it this way. Are you making the regular phone calls, the regular emails with the people who are your closest circle of intimates so that you are staying in touch with them on a regular enough basis and not just saying, eh, today was okay, but actually taking the time to ask each other, what am I learning and what are you learning about our life and your life, our lives together. And if you find yourself saying these things, well, you know, a bedtime prayer would be good or a opportunity to express gratitude before we sit down to a meal together would be good. But, 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 but we're just so busy. I don't have the time. 
What I want to tell you and tell you pretty directly is that if you are saying that to yourself, if you are saying we are too busy to practice, you are too busy not to have a practice. You are too busy not to stop. Because the treadmill that you are on will only speed up and you will become like a gerbil on it. Seeming to make progress, but not really. If you think you are too busy not to have a family practice, then I would heartily recommend that you get one. Try small things. Try a prayer with your kids at bedtime. Try an opportunity. An opportunity. I love as Anne Lamott, one of my favorite spiritual writers, she says that the elements, the basic elements, the essential things in all prayer are these. Help me, help me, help me, and thank you, thank you, thank you. Help me, help me, help me, and thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm in pain, and I am grateful. Essential stuff. See, as you construct your family life, your emotional life, your spiritual life, with your circle of intimates, those you trust, those you have a past with, and those you are going to have a future with, how are you building your lives so that perhaps you are just taking two minutes to say to each other, to say those to those in your circle of intimates, I need help or I am grateful. Just those two things. I'm not doing well or life is giving me abundant joys. And you know what? I would venture to say that every day you can probably say some form of both those things. I need help and I am really grateful. I am in pain and I love you and I love that I am here. Now, I know some of you are already doing this, lighting a candle, saying a prayer, taking the opportunity to recognize this life and through it getting to know who you really are and facing those essential things. And perhaps if you cannot think of anything to do, then just try this as I end this morning. The next time someone you love asks you, how was your day? Answer honestly. The next time someone you love asks you, how was your day? Answer that question honestly. And that will be your start. Amen. May you live in blessing. Thanks for listening to this message from Wellsprings Congregation. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can reach us at wellspringsuu.org. Mm-hmm.